Thanks for being with us. And Robin Gill here co-hosting this afternoon. We were just talking a little bit about this story. A Richmond woman is talking about going for laser treatment, but finding out that laser treatment was done on the wrong eye. Shirley Ng is joining us now to tell us more about this. Shirley, thank you so much for joining us uh, to tell us about uh, this awful thing that happened to you. You're welcome. Can you tell us, kind of walk us through, you went in for this procedure, and how did things unfold? Um, the, it was happened on February 15. Um, the reason that I went to eye care center in BCH in Vancouver is because uh, I scheduled to do the laser on my right eye. That's why I went there. And then once when I get there, I went to the reception and I told the reception, I told one of the receptionists um, the reason why I come here is because uh, I need to do the laser on my right side. And then um, the receptionist asked me to wait for a few minutes. And there was another receptionist. Um, she was holding the lumpy eye drops. And then she came to me. She said, I'm going to put um, the lumpy eye drops on your eye. And I say, okay, that's fine. And then once when she put the lumpy eye drops, she put it on my left eye. And I told her, no, I come here is for doing the laser on my right. And then she said, oh, sorry. And then she put the lumpy eye drops on my, um, on my right eye. So after that, um, I was waiting in the waiting area, and then uh, one of the receptionists asked me um, to go to see the doctor. Once when I get into the office, I saw um, the doctor was there, but I was feeling so surprised because uh, I was thinking um, my eye surgeon, Dr. Gil, he will do the laser on my right eye. Because I remember last time um, at the Richmond Clinic, he promised me that he will do the laser on my right eye. That's why I got more confidence because I told him, if you, do, if you promise me you will do the laser on my right eye, I will have more confidence and I won't feel nervous. That's what um, he promised me. But once, when I get into the office, um, I ask um, the doctor, I ask, where is Dr. Gil? And the, the female doctor, um, she did not even reply my question. She just say, oh, I'm a doctor, Targis. Um, I'm the doctor for doing your laser today. And I say, okay, but I feel nervous. And then she told me, oh, you don't need to be nervous. I will walk through with you. And she turned off the light. She told me, I'm going to put the cold gel lens on your, on your eye. And then I say, okay, because by that time, right, I never done this experience before. I was assuming maybe um, she needs to put something on my left eye first before she can do the laser on my right eye. So I did not question her. And also, um, for me, I was thinking once when I... Um, once when I um, go to see the doctor, of course, I have to trust the doctor. So basically, whatever the doctor say to me, I just follow the instructions and I just listen. And then um, after probably five to ten minutes, um, she told me, oh, you did a very good job. And I was curious. I was just curious myself. Right? I was curious, hmm, how come it seems like um, the doctor keep targeting on my left eye instead of my right eye? But I did not even um, 
I, I did not even um, to bother to ask because I was thinking once when I hear, of course, I have to trust the doctor. So and before I left her office, I I asked her. So you done um, the laser on my right side, yes? And then she say yes. And I left, and she told me you just need to go to the waiting area, and the receptionist will help you to put the eye drops because uh, she needs to check your eye pressure. And I say okay. So after I left her room, and then um, I told my husband, I say, hmm, I just feel curious why it seems like the doctor targeting on my left eye. I supposed to come here to do the laser on my right. So I asked the receptionist, and then I told receptionist the same thing, and I told the receptionist how I feel, and then she say, okay, um, I will find out from the doctor for you, and I say, okay. And then um, after after few minutes, she sent me to see the doctor again. She and I and by the time when I went back to the doctor's room, there was a bench um, outside, and I saw there was another receptionist. She was sitting on the bench, and I was asking that receptionist why I have to sit here for what, and she told me you have to redo it. And I say, what? I have to redo it. And I ask um, another receptionist that um, who is find out the information from the doctor for me. I told her there is a receptionist. She told me I need to redo it. Why I need to redo it? Because I just done the laser. And then she said, no, no, no. Um, the 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 doctor did not ask you to redo it. It's just uh, she just wants you to come in um, to give you the medication for relief. And then by that time, I already lack of trust because I feel I, I already had a doubt, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, I was thinking, oh, probably there's a lot of patients waiting at the waiting area. That's why the receptionist did not even say out anything. So I went to I went to the doctor's room again, and she did not even apologize at the beginning. But I already doubt about it. And then um, she's, I asked her why I need to come in, for what? And she told me, oh, I have to redo your eye. And I was saying that redo my eye, but you just done the, but you just done the laser on my, on my, on my right eye. And then she say, oh, I'm sorry. And by that time, she, she apologized to me. She say sorry to me. And I told her I'm not going to let you um, to do any laser on my right side because I don't have a confidence for you and I don't trust you. So at and that point, Shirley, sorry, at that point then, did you realize that she, that the doctor had lasered the, the wrong eye? Yes. That's why I refused to let her to do the laser on my right side. Because right. for me, it seems like, oh, come on, you are the doctor, but you don't even know which one is right or wrong. Right? That's why I already lack of confidence. And I reject. I say, no, I'm not going to let you to do it. And then um, she apologized to me. She said, oh, I'm really sorry. Um, I've been working here for a while, but I don't know why this happened on me. I don't, I don't even know why I made this mistake. That's what she told me. And she said, but uh, I really have to do the laser on your right side. I asked her why. She told me because right now the pressure of your, the eye pressure of your right side is 40. Okay, so you really have to do it. And I guess by that time, I got no choice. So finally, she did the laser on my right side. And after that, um, she asked me um, to go out. 
um, to ask uh, the, the the receptionist to put the eye drops on me because um, the the receptionist need to check the eye pressure on me. After I left her room the second time, and I went to the reception, I asked the reception, "What is the doctor's name?" And then um, the receptionist asked me, "Which doctor you are talking about?" And I say, "The doctor just did my laser." What's her name? And then she told me, "Oh, you're talking about the fellow doctor." And I was so shocked. I don't even know what is the meaning of fellow doctor at that time. And I was asking the receptionist, "What is the meaning of the fellow doctor?" And she told me, "Oh, the fellow doctor um, is qualified as a doctor, but is still in training." Mm. By that time, I have a feeling like, oh, come on, it seems like I am a rat and then people are trying to testing on me in the lab. That's what, that's what, this is my feeling. This is how I feel. Have you, sorry, Shirley, have you reached out then as far as uh, getting an apology or or what would you like the health authority or the clinic to do or can they do anything to, to make this right for you? Um, I need them to tell me um, right now they did um, the left eye, the, the laser on my left eye, right? Because right now I'm still not sure will be any side effects or will be any harmful to my left eye, right? Mm-hmm. That's why I told everyone um, I'm because I came to the eye care center, right? It's because uh, I need to do the laser on my right eye. That's why um, I told everyone I'm willing to accept if right eye has any side effects, right? But the thing is for my left eye, my left eye is very normal. It's very healthy. And I concern my left eye a lot. Will the left eye have any side effects? And have they because told you if there are going to be any effects or that it would be fine? Of course, they told me, oh, no, it's fine. Uh, it's not going to harm your left eye. And then I was so frustrated. I talked to my eye surgeon. I talked to, I asked him, I told him, um, I take your word very seriously. Because the last time at the Richmond Clinic, I asked you, um, so now you need me to do the laser on my right. So do I need to do any laser on my left eye? Because you told me, um, never, never done anything on your left eye if your eye if your left eye is normal never never done any treatment or surgery on your left eye that's why I took um, that's why I took his work very seriously right what advice do you have then Shirley for people that might be getting surgery or be in this position to make sure this doesn't happen to somebody again uh, I guess for the for the people they just need to be more alert and then once when they get in to see the doctor, I think they really have to assure that the doctor know what's the reason why the patient come here. They, I believe um, the conversation between the doctor and the patient is very important, right? What about any legal avenues? Are you pursuing anything on that front? Uh, no, right now I haven't done any um, legal action yet. All right. Well, Shirley, we appreciate you joining us and telling this story, uh, which is, is just so awful that this happened. Uh, so sorry that this happened to you. But again, thank you so much for joining us and for being on the program today. You're very welcome. 
Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Jill Bennett Show. I'm Robin Gill. I'm co-hosting with Jill today. It's a very somber anniversary. It's been a year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and it's had a massive impact on the world, and the war is not ending. Ukraine has been bolstered by visits from world leaders who've been making their way to Kyiv to show support for Volodymyr Zelensky, but as we mentioned the war is not ending. George Husalek with the Ukrainian World Congress joins us now. George, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Well, thank you for having me. It's still a very heavy time for the world and especially for Ukrainians. Can you reflect on what this past year has been like for them? It's been it's been a real roller coaster. Initially, you know, when we when we heard about the columns of tanks and armored vehicles entering Ukraine that a full-scale offensive was underway, you know, we feared the very worst that that Ukraine could fall within days. Uh, so this marks a very grim time, a very grim thing to remember for us. The the one positive is that Ukraine is still standing. Ukraine is strong. Uh, Ukraine is still fighting for its freedom. I know that since 2022, more than 130,000 Ukrainian nationals have settled in Canada, 11,000 right here in B.C. There must be a level of guilt for some of them, though, having to leave and leave their families behind. It, it's guilt, absolutely, and it's also immense sorrow. I, I know uh, myself, my wife and I and our family, we've taken in three different sets of people over the past months, and they had a really rough time leaving, you know, leaving usually their husbands or brothers or uncles uh, behind in the country. And it's, it, it's just terrible because, you know, these, these parents, uh, these, these families are being forcefully ripped apart. On the other hand, you have these children, over 6,000 of them that have been documented, that have been you know, torn from their families and taken across the Russian border, and they're being indoctrinated into the Russian ways and, and given to Russian families. It's just, it's just unconscionable that this is allowed to happen. Today, our Prime Minister announced um, more sanctions against Russians. Do you think that's working? I think the sanctions are working. I think they're working more than we realize. Russia obviously is going to try and project strength and that what we are doing is feeble and is not going to succeed. But we are beginning to see cracks in their economy. We're beginning to see a lot of infighting among their military. We're beginning to see more prominent Russians speaking out. And as Russia becomes more politically and economically and militarily isolated, I, I think we're going to see over the next months that there, this is going to further uh, exacerbate uh, their predicament and create more and more problems for them. But what more needs to be done to fight this war from the West? Well, the West, the West has done a lot. We need to acknowledge that uh, allies and overwhelming majority of the world is standing shoulder to shoulder with Ukraine. But more does need to be done because the longer this drags out, the more it favors Russia. What we can do presently is further isolate Russia, isolate them politically, diplomatically, uh, ban their athletes. You may have heard that the athletes are planned to, you know, the Olympics are trying to find a way where they can compete. This is simply unacceptable as far as many people are concerned. Uh, sanctions need to be strengthened. They're being circumvented. Uh, they're going, they're going, you know, they're back channeling to get uh, economic aid, to get military aid, and this needs to be closed off. Uh, they need more tactical support. You know, last year at this time, talk about tanks or lethal aid was off the table. And now we're talking about fighter jets, which is the most pressing immediate need because the missiles are flying, the rockets are flying, and uh, Ukraine needs to be able to repel this. And obviously the humanitarian support, which has been outstanding so far, 
it needs to be continued because these needs are ever-present. In the last few weeks, you've seen visits by major world leaders in Kyiv. Is it just symbolic? Uh, what's it being, how's it being received on the ground there? I think it's really inspiring uh, to Ukrainians to see world leaders coming into their country and to see the extent of support that they're having internationally. You know, the very first gesture was done by Ukraine's leader, Volodymyr Zelensky, when, when he took the decision to stay in Ukraine, to stay with his people and to lead them to freedom and victory. And I think the, the literal parade of world leaders coming into a war zone, you know, risking their own well-being, uh, showing their support is immensely gratifying for the Ukrainian nation and very, very inspiring for those who are trying to quell this. Here in Canada, George, can you give us examples of how Canadians have been helping to support Ukrainians with jobs, emotional support, housing, you took in families? Yes, we, we, we did take in families. Many people have done that. Um, many people have donated uh, finances, resources, clothing, you name it, food, supplies, sleeping bags, generators, and this all goes into the country. The organization that I'm with, uh, Ukrainian World Congress, we have a campaign called Unite with Ukraine, and we were initially providing protective equipment to the Ukrainian defenders. Now we've expanded. We're providing uh, generators. We're trying to help get them through the winter and any kind of medical kits, um, support that we can. I so read. Need, if they, I'm sorry? Go ahead. Keep going. I was just going to say, if, if people want to learn, there's, a, there's an excellent website. It's unitewithukraine.com, and it, it details all the work that we've been doing. There are also many other organizations that are doing great contributions to this war effort. I was reading a few days ago that um, some Ukrainians were working on military equipment. That's an interesting story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's being done. There, there are people that are interested in, there are entities that are interested in providing military aid. Uh, a lot of the allies, a lot of the countries are now very, very open to, to doing this, and it is making a difference. And we, we always remember, and especially with this anniversary, we don't have a choice. The Ukrainian nation does not have a choice here. If Russia stops fighting and withdraws, the war is over. If Ukraine stops fighting, Ukraine is over. Do you see more Ukrainians um, leaving and coming coming here to Canada? Because I know that the Prime Minister has made it uh, an open-door policy. There, there are still many Ukrainians coming. Uh, I'm aware of some that are en route as we speak. Um, obviously, I, I think those that are able to make it to Canada have, have by and large made it here, but there still is a great need to accommodate these people. Um, they, they don't really have a choice. Uh, Europe is getting very, very full up. Some countries are starting to kind of close the door, saying, listen, we've, we've, uh, we've accumulated uh, enough people. We can't take any more. Um, they're doing what they can. So to Canada, to U.S., more people are still coming, but there's going to continue to be a need. Thanks for being with us. Robin Gill in studio hosting alongside again today as well. We are now talking about a pair of historic gold medals. They have been replaced more than 40 years after the originals, which were won by Canadian sprinter Percy Williams at the 1928 Olympics. The originals were stolen. And joining us to talk about how this all unfolded is Jason Beck, the curator at the BC Sports Hall of Fame. Jason, thank you so much for being with us. 
Yeah, thanks for having me on, uh, Robin. And uh, Robin is here as well. Uh, we both, I think, have a ton of questions for you because this is just such an amazing story. Before we get to the medals being replaced, can you talk a little bit more about the theft and, and why that was such a great loss? Well, it, it it's the only theft that uh, has ever occurred in our, our Hall of Fame's history. It, it And it, it really was like it, it's just kind of been a, a bit of a black cloud or a dark moment in our in our organization's past that, uh, you know, I think everybody kind of knew about, but uh, there wasn't really any way to resolve it. So um, with the medals never being recovered, we, you know, until this, this, uh, this situation arose here with the family um, kind of taking it upon themselves uh, to, uh, to kind of plead their case and, and uh, put a request into the IOC. And even then, like, these, the IOC does get requests like this from time to time, and they, they for the longest time, have had the policy of not replacing um, uh, stolen or damaged metals. So this, this really was out of left field for us, and just kind of a, you know, a, a good news story to kind of put that back that bad moment to rest. Yeah, Jason, this is like a century later for these medals, if you think about it. It really adds to the history of this province, and especially resurrecting Percy's story. It, it really does. So he, he's. Uh, I, I've said this numerous times over the years. He, he is Canada's most underappreciated Olympic athlete. There, I mean, they're just. Um, most people don't know his name. They don't know his story. I mean, uh, 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 an underdog sprinter from Vancouver won the hundred meters and the two hundred meters at the Olympic Games. It. Um, it just doesn't happen. He's the only third, the third person in history to do that. He's one of only nine uh, men to this day that have done that. The others are like Carl Lewis, Jesse Owens, Usain Bolt. You know, they're massive figures in world sport. One of those uh, those uh, um, great athletes did that as well. And Percy Williams from Vancouver. And he wasn't actually a typical athlete as a kid. Tell us how he got into running. <laughs> it was uh, he. Um, he was actually a bit of a sickly child. He he, um, he had some health issues. He suffered from rheumatic fever, and and doctors had told him, you know, you really need to like stay away from physical activity. You need to kind of, uh, you know, just take it easy. And when he was in school at um, at uh, St. Michael's University uh, School in Victoria, and then later at King Edward High in Vancouver, he started running on the track teams, and uh, his like his speed was just. Yeah, undeniable. It was just completely natural. Um, was blowing everybody away, and then it, it just kind of went from there. So he he was a very small person too. I, I should mention that um, five foot six in height, 125 pounds. Um, Jim Kearney was a Vancouver Sun sports writer who once said he was he was built like a frail fawn, and I to which I would add that was a good thing because he ran like one too. <laughs> That's uh, what a description uh, and uh, the the beginnings and what led to being an Olympic uh, medalist, a gold medalist. Uh, you mentioned as well that the, the medals were never recovered. Do you know anything? I mean, were they targeted about the, the theft itself and, and how they were taken? Well, the what we do know is that in early 1980, gold prices had just skyrocketed to historic levels. So there was a real demand and a value for, for gold at, at that time. And there were several thefts around uh, the Lower Mainland that involved metals or jewellery at that time. And there were thefts from two halls of fame. Um, one was 
was from our hall at the BC Sports Hall, which was located at the PE at that time. And the Canadian Lacrosse Hall of Fame in New Westminster both had gold medals stolen um, within days of one another. Um, the theft at our hall was basically his display case was broken into overnight. And um, the the next day, our, our general manager at the time, Peter Webster, discovered the case was, was damaged and, and the medals were missing. And it wasn't just the 1928 Olympic gold medals that were stolen. It was about 15 of, of Percy's medals in total. And how did and, you have to break uh, the news to him? Well, Peter, I was just asked him that this morning because I'd, I'd never... I never heard that. Um, and he was saying he went over to Percy's um, house where he was living in Vancouver with one of Percy's old friends and teammates, um, Harold Wright, um, who was a former president of the Canadian Olympic Committee. And they they just they broke the news to him that way. And um, Peter said it was one of the hardest, like one of the hardest days of his life. I mean, as you can probably imagine. Hmm, that's a tough one. His family, though, they wanted uh, they wanted to recreate these medals. How are they feeling about t- this today? They were, um, I think, uh, uh, emotional for sure. Um, there was a there's a few tears today, and and but also I think feeling really good. You know, they they've really done a great thing here. Um, like this wasn't this wasn't driven by our hall or by the Canadian Olympic Committee. They they learned about. Percy is a distant relative of theirs and came and visited our hall last summer and and then kind of learned about the theft at that time. And they they were saying as they walked out of the BC Sports Hall of Fame last summer, they were on the sidewalk and said, we need to get those medals back. And uh, that's what how this all started. And it led to um, contacting the Canadian Olympic Committee, who then contacted the International Olympic Committee, and they worked together to, to make replicas to the exact specifications of the 1928 medals. And and was it what was it about this case because like you said they had a policy or they were often are very reluctant and don't make replicas when medals are lost or stolen. So what was different about this case or what do you think changed their mind and led to the replicas being made? Well, I think it was the unique circumstances of it all. One is, you know, the you know, one of the, the great athletes in Canadian history, and so there's that the the medals were never recovered. Um, and it was a family that was, you know, that, that was making the, you know, making the request and, uh, and trying to right or wrong. And it wasn't like they were going to turn around, and, you know, sell these medals or, or have, or have them displayed in, even in their own house. They wanted to, to put them in a place where all Canadians could, could enjoy them. And, and so they decided to, to give them back to, to the BC Sports Hall, where they're they're now on display, um, and and anyone can see them. So I think it was just a combination of all that, just a lot of goodwill, unique circumstances, and and maybe they just saw, hey, there, here's a great story. Let's let's you know, people need some good news these days, and and here's a way we can do that. Um, I'd love to hear what their reasoning was, but that's that would be my thought on it. Do you think this will help? Like you said, the, here we have somebody who did remarkable things, but is uh, perhaps the most underrated Canadian athlete. Do you think by having these medals replaced and now on display again, will it help people know exactly who and more about who Percy Williams was? I, I do think it will. Um, I think it'll make people, you know, look into Percy's story a little bit, a little bit more because there's aspects of it that, you know, that every Canadian would find inspiring or, or at least should know. And the one that I shared today that people were, were really responding to was, you know, Percy is, was an inspiration for the Canadian flag. 
you know, <laughs> which a lot of people don't realize. The designer of the Canadian flag was a guy named George Stanley. And when he was tasked with, with creating a new flag for Canada in the mid-1960s, he kept going back to this photo he remembered as a, as a boy of this Canadian sprinter that was just crossing the finish line and had this big red maple leaf on his singlet. And he knew, you know, everybody knew that by seeing that maple leaf, that was a Canadian athlete, a Canadian runner. That was Percy Williams. And and the red maple leaf, of course, ended up as the key feature on our, our flag to this day. That's a remarkable story. I mean, um, I had someone here tell me today they're going to look at the Canadian flag different every time that they see it now and think of this Vancouver runner named Percy Williams. That's a great story. I didn't know that. I learned something today. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yes, I will fully admit I, I did not know that either. But now looking at this, it is. Why do you think he he was so kind of unknown, even though he did these amazing things? Well, I, and there's a couple of things, and I think one is is he was a very shy, reclusive person. Um, he he didn't crave the spotlight. He stayed away from it. Um, and so I think, he, you know, in that way, that probably didn't help his cause to, you know, to get his story out. Um, you know, I think that, that would definitely played a role. And I think the other aspect is Canadians just in general often don't celebrate our great athletes, particularly from that era, like other countries do, like the Americans or, or the British or, or the French or Germans. It, we, we just we're maybe a little bit too humble or don't like to kind of, you know, bang our own drum or pump our chest. So I don't know. It's something I'm, I've wondered myself because for years I've been giving tours at our hall of fame and we have a statue of Percy right out front of our hall. And I ask groups of school kids and adults if they know who the sprinter is and virtually all of them don't, but maybe that'll change after today. All right. Well, Jason, thanks so much for joining us to tell us about this and the ceremony. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me on. And and thank you for shining a spotlight on, on this great story. Let's talk about fitness levels, going to the gym, how people maybe didn't do it so much during the height of the pandemic. Are we getting back to those levels? Well, Mario Canseco joins us now on the line, president of Research Co. Mario, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. Great to be here with you. Great to have you. Robin Gill is co-hosting today as well. So let's get to the numbers. What were you asking people about physical fitness and those levels? Well, we were very curious to see whether Canadians are following the physical activity guidelines. This is a recommendation that everybody should have at least 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous intensity physical exercise every week. And we were curious to see how people felt about their fitness levels before COVID-19, at the height of the pandemic, and now over the past three months where everything has been open and there there have been no restrictions to physical activity or, or gyms or yoga studios so uh, the numbers are not great. You know, we're not going back to the situation that we had before COVID-19. We had a majority of Canadians who were meeting these guidelines every week or most weeks, and now it's down to 48%. I guess I'm surprised that we were ever in a position where the majority of people were meeting the guidelines. Well, it's really fascinating to look at the data that comes out of Statistics Canada every three or four years And BC is usually one of the best uh, areas of the country when it comes to physical fitness. More people who are involved 
in a specific league or who are running or jogging or doing something different, going to the gym. It interrupted things. I think a lot of people were very disappointed with the fact that their gyms were closed. And what we asked as well was, what did you do to deal with this? If you were really in the need for that exercise, did you follow some routines online? Did you buy some equipment for your home? Did you decide to take up a sport that doesn't require equipment? And we do see British Columbians and younger Canadians more likely to do these actions. But a lot of middle-aged and older residents of the country saying, nah, I'm just going to let it go. (laughs) So they're not going back to the gyms? No, that's the scary part in a way, because we're having all of these discussions about the healthcare system. How do we stay fit? We spent countless hours talking about how much alcohol we should take every week. And now we're in this situation where we can't go back to the fitness levels that we had prior to the pandemic. There's 28% of Canadians who told us they never meet the guidelines. And this is essentially saying, I've given up on exercise. This is up five points from where we were before COVID-19. So the pandemic definitely affected some of those routines. And for some people in some areas of the country, it's been difficult to get back to where they were. Mario, what incentive do they need to get back into this groove? Well, I think one of them is definitely the way they will feel about it. Uh, I think what we saw in the pandemic was a lot of people who were taking into different things. We follow this closely as far as just even stuff that is simple, such as brushing your teeth. And at, at the height of the pandemic, we had so many people who said, I didn't have a shower over the past couple of days. I didn't actually brush my teeth. All I'm doing is trying to look good from the waist up because I'm in Zoom meetings all the time. And we have had a tough time trying to get back to those things that we were supposed to be doing. And it is affecting people over the age of 55 more. And this is essential to the well-being in their later years. So we do see younger Canadians more likely to look at exercise as something that needs to happen. And they took action during COVID-19 to continue with their fitness levels. Uh, But it's the older generation that requires a little bit of a nudge. Hmm. I, you know, that is true. My dentist told me that everyone stopped flossing and not that everyone was flossing to begin with, but for whatever reason, it was the pandemic and people just gave up on uh, flossing their teeth. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Not, not so good. Not so good. Did you ask people, Mario, if they're, if they took up a different kind of exercise? I know you touched on this, but maybe if you didn't want to go back to the gym or for whatever reason, did people start doing something else? Yes, this was important because we do see people who decided to make an investment in bringing the gym to their home, so to speak. So we had 18% of Canadians who said they went to get weightlifting equipment for their homes, maybe dumbbells. Uh, Cardio machines had 16%, you know, people who said, you know what, I'm just going to bring the treadmill to my house and I'll put it somewhere where, where it won't take up much space. Uh, But also 17% who said, uh, I can't play organized sports. You know, they're telling us that we can't play softball or we can't play soccer. I'm just going to take up running or jogging and I'm going to stay away from people and keep my distance. What is interesting about this is it seems to be a little bit higher with the younger generation. I think they were the ones who were really hoping to continue with some of these fitness levels. 75% of those aged 18 to 34 did something to try to maintain their fitness level during the COVID-19 pandemic, only 30% for those over the age of 55. So old habits die hard. If you've been there for a couple of years without exercising, it takes a little while to get used to it and to try to bring it back to uh, your own schedule in the way that we had it uh, prior to COVID-19. It is hard though, when you give up working out and trying to get back into it. (laughs) Trust me, I've been there. (laughs) (laughs) We've all been there, right? It's, It's a... It's a difficult situation. 
Um, but in a way, it's something that the government used to motivate more. You know, one of the disappointments when I was researching for this was to look at the website for the Canadian Physical Activity Guidelines, and they haven't had a single press release over the past couple of years. You know, this is the moment where you need to re-engage with Canadians and say, hey, you know, do something, get back to the fitness levels that you had before. So the government sometimes does a great job telling us what to do, particularly with alcohol. This is one that they should be taking on a little bit more seriously. Maybe they're revising it. Maybe 150 minutes isn't enough anymore. <gasps> no. <laughs> no. Jill is balking at it's, that right now. We can't even get horror on her face, 50. people. That's the problem. <laughs> You know, I mean, I'm an older person now, and I realize that 150 minutes wasn't enough. I actually need to work out more. Like, I'd like to get back into that, but maybe they do need to revise it. Well, and it's something that we've seen in other uh, issues, right? You know, we are revising a lot of things. We're looking into ways in which we can make ourselves healthier. Uh, I've never seen a situation over the past 10 years where the over 55 group is as concerned about healthcare as it is now, not only in British Columbia, but across Canada. So part of that essence is, well, you should take care of yourselves better. And, and it might actually be a little bit easier for the healthcare system to deal with everything that we have in front of us. But there hasn't been a party that has taken this on. Uh, and it certainly doesn't seem to be any sort of a, a priority for the federal government to talk about this because um, we've had a couple of years to get ready for the post-pandemic situation and we don't see the government telling us, hey, would you like to exercise more? It would be good for you. On the other hand, you could say that medical professionals and associations might need to lobby more on this front. It's an important one. You know, if, if we go back to 2017, 2018, we had discussions about tax credits for kids' activities, and there was a, a lot of effort from specific political parties and members of a, a parliament to say, why stop there? Why don't we motivate people to get a gym membership, to do something like this, give, give them some sort of tax credit for staying healthy, because that is going to help things. Um, then the pandemic happened, and all of that seemed to fizzle. So it might be time to revisit that issue. Well, and that brings up uh, something as well, and I'm not sure if you asked people about this, but I'm curious with inflation, with everything costing so much more now, do you think it could be also that uh, people cut things like a gym membership, which can be expensive and just aren't spending the money on it? It's definitely part of the problem. You know, we see especially seniors on a fixed income saying, I'm not going to be spending a lot of money on this. Uh, there are certain options, of course, that they could look into. And the easiest and the cheapest one would be to take up a sport that doesn't require equipment. And we still only see 8% of uh, Canadians over the age of 55 who decided to do this during COVID-19. So part of it is education. And we do see those generational bands very clearly defined. Uh, Middle-aged Canadians sort of maybe thinking about it, but the younger generation saying, this is part of my mental sanity as well. I need to get back into something that is going to help my fitness levels. And Mario, did you look at kind of across the country? I mean, we are blessed, not tomorrow, it's going to snow, but we're kind of blessed with milder weather here where it is easier to run outside year round if you want to and to really go out and run the seawall or be by the water. Did, did you get the sense at all that maybe in BC people are, are going outside and taking advantage of that, whereas maybe in some other provinces, the weather makes that so it's not possible? You know, there's two areas of the country that sort of win here because we don't see a lot of fluctuation pre-COVID-19 and now, and it's BC and Ontario. The fluctuations are a couple of points here, a couple of points there. The biggest problem is in Alberta. We saw Alberta at the height 
of uh, following these guidelines before COVID-19, and now they drop to the last place. So part of it has to do with our weather, but it's also about whether we can figure out a way to do things. We know that Alberta hasn't had a fantastic uh, situation as far as finances are concerned, so that might also play a role in this. You know, It's not as if I can take the time off because I have to work or if I want to invest in this. So uh, BC and Ontario did a little bit better than the rest, uh, Alberta certainly came in at the bottom when it came to trying to get back to the way things were in 2019. But Alberta has those Chinooks, so you could get outside in winter, right? <laughs> exactly. It's not as if you're going to take up running, right? Exactly. <laughs> All right, Mario, thank you so much. Always good to chat with you. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Great to chat with you both.